This is the unfiltered truth about entrepreneurship. Raw, no BS, no sugarcoating. Welcome to Entrepreneur Intel. I'm your host, Wes Matthews. Each episode, we'll learn from experienced founders and uncover the top 5% learnings that led to their success in all things personal, family, and business. This show is sponsored by Stealth Consulting, delivering clear marketing strategies, ROI, and no surprises. I'm so excited for today's guest. He is a skilled entrepreneur with nearly four decades of experience under his belt. He's a four-time founder with two successful exits, has received numerous accolades, including CEO Monthly Magazine's chairperson and top five CEO to watch, 23 by CIO Magazine. He is the author of the book, Out Focus, founder, chairman, and CEO of Target Tech. Welcome, Bill Adams Jr., Thank you so much. Bill, great to have you on. Really excited. But I ha- first, I have to ask a question I ask all of the guests on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, Target Tact employs uh, almost 30 individuals. Um, you've been doing this for about four decades in your intro. What's the most important lesson you've learned over these four decades? I mean, obviously, there's more than one, but what's that North Star for you? Be humble. Yeah. Be humble because... Um, especially in startup situations, um, the roadblocks the, the, that are uh, presented to you along the way, you never know the roadblock. You think you know the pathway and you have a strategic roadmap built out. But the humility, I've learned that no matter how positive I am, that we're going to be very successful, you got to have humility all the way around because these, road, these uh, blocks are going to come at you, and the better you're prepared for them, and they don't disappoint you. So if you are always thinking, oh, not, you know, we've got it all figured out, nothing will happen. When they happen, you can be very disappointed in yourself and the organization. And I've learned to take the opposite. I know there are things out there that are going to surprise us. Don't panic. Just keep moving forward. That's really great perspective. Something that I started thinking about lately is taking your your humble concept and just letting people know, like, this is part of the process. Like, without this stuff happening, we can't get to the next level. Because I think when you're starting something or as an entrepreneurial company, like you said, stuff's going to happen. So now we kind of have this mantra around here where when it happens, you're like, oh, good. Like, now we can move forward because this is what we were waiting for. Um, so talk a little bit about like the beginning, right? I mean, did you, were you always an entrepreneur? Did you come from the corporate world? Like what drove you to become an entrepreneur? Well, I was in corporate America. My first, my first position, uh, out of my MBA, uh, was, uh, Johnson and Johnson. And they moved me from Syracuse, New York, where I'm from, uh, to, uh, New York city. And I took over every hospital in New York city for their, number one division called patient care. And that launched me in the corporate career. And I progressed with three or four Fortune 100 companies until I turned 38. And I found myself literally realizing that in order to get the corner office, you you have to be in love with the art of politic. And I was in love with the art of the deal. So at 38 years old, I decided to leave corporate America and hang my first shingle and open my first consulting firm. That was the beginning. 
and I never looked back. I just continued to build. I've sold a couple, and um, uh, I find that I have an entrepreneurial spirit and passion that I don't fit in a corporate environment because I'm always looking to challenge myself entrepreneurially. And I've always said, even when I was nearing the end of my career in corporate America, I always said to my associates, um, you know, if we're good enough to do it for this company, imagine what we can do if we went off on our own. So I always had that kind of wily eye about the entrepreneurism. Now, where that all stems from, if you'd like to know, my father was an entrepreneur. He was a dry cleaner. And his own dry cleaning uh, did very well in the 50s and 60s. And I grew up as watching my father walk into his uh, dry cleaning plant every day, taking his hand and kissing the picture of President Truman and always oh. saying, he's the only guy I work for. That's hilarious. So, it, it kind of rubbed off, I think, right? What's interesting you say, you know, like the corner office and politics, sometimes I I feel I have blinders on, but to me, it's like, I, I can't believe that there's people out there that want to engage in that for that corner office. And what I've heard in my experience are people like or that would say, well, being an entrepreneur is scary because, you know, you have to go out there and generate your own revenue. And at least if I'm working with this corporate organization, it's, I know it's coming in, but to me, I'm <laughs> like, it's quite the opposite. I mean, you know, for me now, I, I have to wait for this corporate organization to pay me. Like that's scarier to me to have that kind of control. And then this other thing you sparked in me, I've been with this organization called EO for many, many years, entrepreneur organization. There's kind of a running joke that says we are all like extremely unemployable as people. <laughs> like, we're, uh, That's great. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always felt like a big outcast, right? Like I'm just like the worst guy that would ever be in a corporate environment. So coming up, uh, watching your father be an entrepreneur, you know, you, you kind of go through the corporate ladder ranks. Was it a consultant? So you kind of look at that market and said, hey, I, I either can drive revenue for this company or I could potentially become a consultant and do it myself. So what, what did that look like? I mean, was it a traditional consultancy that you build or did you take on a bunch of associates there that you worked with that you would you know tell stories with? Or what did that look like? Well, it's interesting. Um, near the end of my corporate career, the last couple of years before, I had done some things in, you know, um, in corporate America that got some press, got some notoriety. And I started to be asked to do speeches. Um, I didn't get paid for them because I worked for a corporation at the time, but they loved it because it gave exposure to what I was doing within the corporation. My last position, I was the director of corporate accounts uh, for a Fortune 100 company. So imagine big corporate accounts, ATT, uh, IBM. These were the essence of the team uh, that I supported that uh, we did every day. So, you know, there there was one, Eli Lilly, they were our accountant. They asked me, would I come in and do a keynote speech? I did. I did some more. I've also written a lot of white papers over my career. And when all that became the gel, when I was 38 years old, uh, I realized that um, I didn't fear risk. Uh, I mean, I did think under the corporate umbrella, for an example, 
Uh, the ninth building in the um, in New York City that fell was the last one that crumbled out. It used to be called the Shearsk Lehman Building. And believe it or not, um, the company I was with was in the interior furnish, furnishings business. It was called Herman Miller. And at the time, uh, I worked with the salesperson, and we were able to get that company to buy 14, at that time was a big number, $14 million worth of furnishings for, I forget how many floors. In essence, it wasn't the whole building, it was the majority of the building. And I did it by being an entrepreneur. I went to the, I only went to the uh, chief facilities officer and I made a deal with him that if he were to come on, do this experiment, it was a brand new product line for them, um, that I would uh, make sure that he got on the covers of magazines and we would proudly present his story. And so that's very entrepreneurial. So my mind always worked on the edges. Um, and as you know, um, you can only do that so long in corporate America, especially at the apex, at the top echelon. So I just thought to myself, I like the edge. I'm not afraid of, of risk. Um, and my passion is to build something that came from my ingenuity. That was my passion. And so everything I do, and I've, when I do all my consulting, you probably enjoy this. I used to go in, I'd be dealing with a room of 20, 25 executives in a large or maybe mid-sized corporation, sometimes in SMBs. And I used to run a series of vignettes. They were like games, but they were based on game theory. But in essence, it was uncovering, unmasking the organization and leadership problems. That was the reason I built this, if you will, series of vignettes. And one of them was near the beginning as I ran these vignettes. One of them was I threw my wallet on the middle of the, because we always met around the board table, large table. I threw my wallet on the table. And I say, all of you have got to make a decision in your lives at some point or another. What's more important to you, your wallet or your ego? Think about that. And I would let them think about it. They would ruminate. I'd say ruminate. Ruminate on that for about 10 minutes. And I'd leave and I'd get a cup of coffee, do what I do. And I'd come back. And it was really interesting. There are some people that almost put, broke out in sweat, trying to make the right choice. There is no right choice. You either are ego-driven and think your wallet will follow, or you're there for the paycheck. Which is it? Now, after working with hundreds of leadership teams, there's no question in my mind that the people that really are ego-driven are more entrepreneurial spirit, and they generally don't last their whole career in corporate world because they want to leave something behind, an impression, my ego. I think I can do it better. These are things that I search for. Um, because when I find them, and it's always about 10, you know, you get that 10, 80, 10 rule. 10 are really, you can depict as them. 80 kind of sit in the middle, they give you kind of mushy stuff. And then 10% say, absolutely, I'm here. I'm, my wallet's the most important thing. So you can always break it up that way. And it used to help me a lot in how to deal 
with these three segments of leaders, and it made my job easier knowing up front where they were coming from. Now, with that being said, that's really that's really interesting to me because I look at the world as it's either you're an entrepreneurial run organization or you're not. And what I found for myself personally, like I I get along really well with other entrepreneurial run companies because I just don't speak the language of corporate America. Um, sure. Now, have you found that like obviously? I'm going to assume it was it's super helpful that you know until you're 38 years old climbing the ranks of a corporate organization, but Behind you, you have Outfocus Book and Targo, which we're going to get into. But is that generally like the direction of where you took your entrepreneurial journey, like selling through to corporate organizations or were you a little bit of both? Or No, all of you, you mean my clients. My number your one clients, client, yeah. yeah, my client base um, was always in corporate America. So I knew, I knew the animal. I knew how the animal acted, reacted. I knew the I knew where the where the weaknesses uh, strengths and weaknesses were in leadership teams. I, I I came with all that. I'd been doing it for enough years. I became a vice president, thirty one years old. So I had seven years not not in that company, a different company, and then I switched over. But I had years of really watching the leadership dynamics, and I understood you know many of the problems that they were facing trying to lead. And of course, um, nothing better to guide someone in an endeavor than understanding the audience that you're going after. So deploying into this company, was there many forms of this entrepreneurial venture where your clients, the corporate organization, or has it always been the same company? Because in your introduction, which is phenomenal, four-time founder with two exits. Were you able to exit in your consulting firms or were these other organizations? Good question. Um, Sorry, good question. Um, There were two consulting firms and then I built a technology company uh, back in the day called Valley Collaborator. And uh, I offloaded that onto a mid-sized consultancy. So um, I've been, if you look at my career, very successful. i was bought out by Del Perro Systems, and with that buyout, that was the last buyout. Uh, but that buyout, it was actually a roll-up. They actually, uh, and actually, I had to go to work for the office of vice chair. So I had, I left the company behind to partners. Uh, actually, one is there was two sides of the business. One still exists in New Jersey. It's and the partner and I still talk. It's called BrainWorks. They're a recruiting firm but I got them into the very high-end recruiting for uh, technology through my uh, consulting firm. And um, so um, my last exit was a roll-up into Perot. Each exit is different. You know, you can have a roll-up, I've had um, uh, an out-and-out buy. So depending on where you're at in your career, you learn from these experiences. And what I one thing I've really learned is this, you never know where the buyer is going to come from. You may think you know, but Perot Systems started out as my partner. For one year, I worked with them in, uh, to get them in companies like DuPont, Merck, Cigna uh, Insurance. And at the end of the year, when I went to renew the license, they said, Bill, we don't want to renew the license. The long or short of it is, they said, we want to buy you. 
I wasn't for sale. But you never know when these things are going to come up. And it was uh, the best move I could make because, to be honest, I got a chance to work with one of the leading organizational consultants in the world, Jim Champy. He was at that time president of the consulting. Uh, and um, he and I had a great relationship. And part of the reason, part of the reason it was a good experience for me, it, it, it bolstered my opportunity to work with one of the leaders in the world. He's now written 10 books. He and Michael Hammer were the ones who wrote the book called uh, Reengineering the Corporation. They made uh, business process reengineering uh, popular. And because I worked with him, I got to understand fundamentally where they were coming from, why. And what I did is actually departed from their theory that process was the center of the world. And I created my own, which where the theory was assets were the center of the world. And uh, unfortunately, Jim Champy was one of my primary references. For, and that was in 1998 when I formed Whitespace. And uh, he remained a friend and a, uh, and matter of fact, in my book, I give him accolades and acknowledgement. So um, the whole thing is, it's, it's all, when you look at, if you're an entrepreneur and you look at life, you never know when the roadblocks are going to come. You never know when the opportunities are going to come. You, have, you can have a great plan, but if you're not, um, if you're not agile and you're not flexible and you're not willing to take, you know, um, uh, roadblocks and turn them in. I say lemons, turn them into lemonade. Every time I get a lemon thrown at me, my job is not to handle the lemon. My job is to handle the lemon, how to make the, the lemonade. So I've always had that kind of opinion about entrepreneurism since I got in it, 38 years old. And I'm more convinced today than ever that adroit, agility, understanding um, yourself and being Humble in the fact you got a great idea, but remember, you can never see the light of day if you're not able to handle the uh, unforeseen uh, bumps in the road. <clears throat> and they definitely, those definitely appear like what you were talking about. You never know where, you know, this buyer is going to come from. I think in, a, in the entrepreneurial world, it's like you never really know where your problem is going to come from. It just sort of happens. You got to be able to roll with the punches. Yeah. So, you know, for an entrepreneur who's looking to tap into that that market, right? Um, you know, on the consulting side, like my brain goes, you know, your, your client base must have been very valuable, but it's hard to scale you or buy you, right? Because, I mean, if you're a consultant, you're the one kind of driving that. So what was the main value driver or maybe talk a little bit about how to build that in a consulting company where you're like the guy? You know, and unless you want to go work for that company and kind of repeat that corporate process over again, how do you design it in a way that it's not just all about Bill? Well, that's a that's that's like the sixty four thousand dollar question when you're a consultant, especially when you have a proprietary approach. So I have my own approach. I created it. We went through a patent pending process, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was it was uh, distinctly. Uh, different than um, the majors out there. So the PW, the, my competition, believe it or not, were the PWCs, um, Accenture back then. These companies were heavy into consulting. Um, a lot of companies had tried them. Uh, why did they use us? Well, um, 
they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. They really kind of got a rehashed version of what was already out in the marketplace. And that's not what they were looking to do. So let's say since 98, when I started White Space, I started it on the premise of a program I, where I departed from BPR, and it's called the Value Component System. And it's an asset-based system. And my, when I went out into the market, my first client was digital. Digital knew me through my consulting efforts. And I said, look, I've got my own. Digital knew me when I was um, the uh, director of alliances for Perot Systems. Uh, my job was to take all the technology Pro had and to figure out a way not to change a company, to change an industry. And I found one. And it was a friend of mine. It was at uh, Signa Insurance. And literally, uh, we were going to figure out how to reduce the, the processing of claims from $4.25 down to $2.50, then we were going to package it up, create a, a new new company, and then we were going to sell it to the second and third tier um, insurance firms so they could give up uh, their backroom operation. So it was a major uh, major endeavor, major opportunity. But I learned a lot um, dealing with Jim Champy and the application of business process reengineering, and came up with my own approach to value component system. And that was the approach that was a differentiator. Now, um, to the point of cloning yourself, Jim Champy taught me one thing. When you are the thought leader in creating a business or something of that nature in consulting, where it's got a proprietary process, in other words, I am not taking an existing process on the market lean thinking, whatever you want, of Six Sigma. Now I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a black belt in Six Sigma. I'm going to do Six Sigma. You can scale that because you can hire other Six Sigmas. With me, Jim Champy warned me, Bill, you're the only guy that can do what you can do. And therein lied the dilemma. I could not scale my business. I had associates, they had roles, but every client, wanted Bill Adams to be the thought leader in the innovation and transformation. So there is, and we experienced that. I tried twice to clone myself, and unfortunately, both times it, uh, it failed. So um, there is that limitation, but it usually you have to have something unique that only you know intimately because you've invented it. If you're going to go out and copy or take what exists and you're going to apply it, and be a better salesman to get it in, or maybe bring some enhancement to it. Other than that, um, if you're the guy and you're the one who created something and you're the one out there and you're going after clients, uh, especially big clients, you're the man or the, or the person, and they want you to be the thought leader. If you had to do it all over again, like you're, you're you're, you're making me generate a lot of thoughts around the, the idea of, you know, just latch onto something where the market's already conditioned, where they're already aware of it. So like, should I go out there and be the best Six Sigma consultant versus coming out with my own way? And I think it's important 
for entrepreneurs and maybe you probably have wealth of knowledge on this just seeing where the where technology is today and social media and we're going to get about in talking about target and ai and all these different things like how do you separate yourself from all the noise especially as a consultant introducing something brand new is a little it's scarier than latching on to something that's already worked but my common denominator brain is well if it's already worked and there's a pool of clientele that might be a lot easier to penetrate to kick off my business versus having to educate them on something brand new. Well, when I hit the value component system in 98, no one ever heard of it. I mean, I was out there, but I will tell you this. Um, there's, we didn't spend one dime on marketing. Once I got, once I got, uh, once I got into um, a series of big companies, compact digital, AT&T, Lucent, I mean, uh, and I got to, I, you know, it, it, it carried its own voice. These people run in circles. They all know each other. So when I sit with a client, uh, the lead in my client, and I say, look, um, I've got some space for some more business. Do you know of anybody that you may want to introduce me to? It never failed that there was a connection. I also carved out certain niches, for an example. Um, I carved out a niche, which became a niche after I did it, in where I was helping CRM, uh, I'm sorry, um, companies that marketed pharmaceutical products online. I actually dealt with the first company, SimStar, who was ever successful at doing that. Um, and he had been running the the rope with it for about eight years and what was happening now is competitors were coming in all over the place. Everyone wanted a piece of that pharmaceutical market, direct to market campaigning. And, um, but um, in the end, the CEO won uh, CEO of the year for pharmaceutical marketing uh, by the pharmaceutical industry and the company became the company of the year. So, and that's only one example. I do have some accolades underneath me that I, I was able to take small to mid-sized firms and completely re-engineer, innovate their current business model. And then I would help them transform their asset base to support that model going forward. So that experience got around uh, the niche got around. I ended up working with, I think, three companies in the farm industry. And I can only take on, as you can imagine, so many clients at yeah. one time. We had clients in different phases. So we offered our product in three phases. You had concept development, content development, and execution. You could stop after the first, stop after the second. They were all prepackaged price. It was 100000 some negotiated. Oh, if I gave you 75 cash, would you take 25% of our stock, uh, 25% in stock? At one time, my wife and I, because we built the firms, uh, held um, stock in nine SMBs. Half of them paid off and half of them dis didn't. But um, So we had to be flexible also, right? But they were all prepackaged. And every time we had a client, they wanted me, the, the, the you know, the uh, founder and uh, the innovator to be able to go in and work with their team and to be able to uh, transform, innovate and transform the business model. Well, I really like what you said. 
you know, didn't spend a dime in marketing and, you know, went to your network and, and simply just asked, hey, I have capacity. Who can you refer me to essentially in, in different terms? But I think it's a really important sure. tidbit for, for entrepreneurial folks or people that are currently in an organization that are wanting to spin off and do something on their own. I mean, a lot of people think you have to pump in all this money into marketing to create this thing, but it's like, go out there and start making it happen, right? And then you can start to invest. But I want to dive in while we have the time into, <laughs> into, into Targa AI. I mean, right now, AI is the buzzword. You have way more experience than I do in this world. And you've probably seen just, you know, I mean, when I graduated high school, my cell phone had like the biggest antenna and my phone bills would get out of control to a couple thousand dollars a month because yeah. I was calling my girlfriend from a different state, you know, and then I watch my kids today play Fortnite and they're speaking through their remote controls with all their friends. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a different world that we live in. And, you know, from a technological perspective and AI, you know, talk a little bit about Targa, what you're doing now, what that company is. I also want to talk a little bit about how you're kind of building this company because I find it very interesting with with all the knowledge you have and how you're approaching it is really fascinating. Okay. Um, look, um, you know, I wrote a book that's behind me, uh, Focus, and um, you can find this book on Amazon. And in this, this book was, uh, my book was published by Forbes. It's the first of a three-book series I'm doing. And um, the reason I bring it up in there, I discuss all the organization, leadership, and automation changes that have went on over the last decade, but especially since COVID. The world has become a, a completely different world. If you look at 10 years, we've never seen this kind of change in 10 years since the Industrial Revolution. And in my book, I even talk about the fact that we are in an AI gold rush, similar to the California gold rush. And the rule is going to be, is actually, the first in reap, will, reaps all the rewards. They, I'm sorry, the first in writes all the rules and reaps, reaps all the rewards. Look at chat GBT, you look at, go down the list. Mm -hmm. The ones in first, they're gonna model it up they're going to more than likely be the ones that are going to reap the most rewards early on. And we are still early on. I mean, this transition, I'm telling you, it was really COVID, in my opinion, that got every company to think big about collaboration and AI, how that was going to fit in. So we were building this before COVID. It took us five years to build the platform. And the essence of the AI, it's more than AI on our platform. It's a combination of AI, ML, um, um, obviously we have uh, chatbot technology, and it's how to blend those advanced automation tools on a single platform that is built specifically for the leader. The number one thing that differentiates us from any other SaaS platform out there is all SaaS platforms are built for the masses and they hope to bubble it up to the leaders. And the leaders still don't use Salesforce. They don't use Monday.com. They leave that to the, to the minions, the workforce, right? So 
One of the things I realized while I was doing all this consulting since 98 is leaders were more frustrated and often disoriented today than they were 10, 10 years prior. And I'm going, wait a minute. The purpose of technology, the whole story behind technology is they were going to make the workplace a simple place. It's become more complex than ever. And that is what sparked my interest and uh, the passion, my ego, to see, could I solve this leadership problem? And if so, what would it take? And it took five years to get it to market, which it is now. And um, it, it is that kind of inspiration in the AI world. You have to start with the German, the idea. AI is really about algorithms. It's, it, you, you don't go and say, oh, you see this? This is AI. It's not the way it works. It's about how you formulate and utilize algorithms to either predict, right, uh, the, the future, or help you automate the present, right? And we put both on one platform. We have automated the um, uh, the automated the business process, and we have predictive analytics built into platform that helps leaders to predict future moves so they can pivot, corrective action. So no, it's no longer, geez, we're in a bad situation. We're behind not going to meet our revenue goals. Okay, now let's get everybody together in meetings. We'll decide what to do to pivot. No, we think in the future it's going to be AI-driven. Now, you need ML because you can't do predictive analytics unless you're learning from it. So it's a combination of AI, ML, and then, of course, we went to the nth degree, and we've enabled every leader to run their business off of any device in the world, voice-activated or by text. This we see is the way of the future. So how are we different? No one has accomplished his feat yet, according to Gartner, who is my guiding light from 2017. And this whole notion that AI is, is, um, is the future is only in its beginning stages. We are still learning what it really means, how we utilize algorithms to learn, to predict. Um, even on our platform in 25, we're going to be adding a feature which is going to augment decision-making. So you can be on an airplane, the problem shows up on your phone, you can get variables, change those variables. The a synchronizer will work with predictive analytics. It'll come back and say, if you do these things, you have an 18% chance of meeting your goal improve your chances of meeting goal by 18%. So it's fundamentally, AI has got two sides to that coin. And initially, I think there's going to be many, many more good uses of it than bad. But as we all know, the sinister, there are sinister uh, people out there that got that sinister side to them. And of course, it will. There will be ways they're going to figure out uh, to do bad things with a good tool. I gotta ask. So, as an entrepreneur, right? I mean, you hear like executive titles and positions, right? You have the CEO, the owner, COO, head of sales, operations, delivery, finance. 
how much of AI do entrepreneurs need to be thinking about now spinning up a new company? Just like my first company, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going to run sales until I can find somebody to run sales, right? I, I knew in my heart of hearts that at some point, somebody's going to need to own this seat. Like it, it just came with the territory of being an entrepreneur. What does AI look like for like the next five years as an entrepreneur? Because I guess the overwhelming thing is where do you, where do you start? And, you know, there's chat GPT, but where, where do you go to get this information? Well, it's, a, it's another good question. I mean, the fact of the matter is um, ideas, you know, the seeds of ideas uh, come from, you know, I always get a seed of an idea and then I look to other universes, I call it universes. So if I'm solving a problem uh, or if I'm looking at a problem like we did, uh, and it's a leadership problem, and there's no platform built for leaders, believe it or not, they're all built for the masses. We're the first ones that stepped up. We, I just got off the phone today um, with um, a very rich conversation with the director of M&A for EDP. They're all over it. They want a demo. They want to see how they can uh, embed this in their organization. So when I started out, I started out with a system architect, myself with a vision, the architect understanding how to convert it into uh, technology. And never, when we started out five years ago, uh, did we in our wildest dreams think we'd be this far along in five years with the application of AI and ML and and other advanced technologies, but we are. And if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking to try to solve a business problem or a technology problem, but you need technology, to, but you're not looking to technology to be incorporated, you're probably a horse and buggy competing against a jet plane, right? Yeah. So you've got to be thinking about it in a way that seeds, whatever your seed for your idea, that incorporates the, the capabilities of AI and it's and all the other terms that go with it. And just to clarify, ML, that stands for machine learning, correct? Correct. I'm sorry, yes, machine no, learning. You're good. And no, machine you're learning, good. yeah, machine learning and AI, they, they're used together. They mesh it all under AI. But machine learning, if you were to Google it, you'll see that AI sits atop ML. ML is a subset of AI. Um, but they are separate applications, if you will. Well, what's amazing, I I hate to admit this, but I'm going to. I typically don't watch the news, but I caught it last night briefly, and they were highlighting Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's company. I don't know the details and his involvement, but they were showing that it's underway and it's being developed and somebody's got it now implanted, and it's taking paralyzed individuals and allowing them to walk, it's it's allowing them to control phones through their brain. I mean, what we're about to get into is just, it's hard for the human brain to process. Um, Correct. So excited to see the evolution of Targa and what you guys are able to do. But can you talk about a guy with your success and background? How do you go about starting this company? Like, do you take all your capital from the sale of your company to launch to go all in on this new venture or you know you're a guy with four decades of experience how do you how, how do you, how do you start this venture in, in a way that makes sense for you well it's um 
it's very hard to start uh, like we used to in the old days, not we, but other people, Gates, Jobs. They started on college campuses, went to garages, started their companies in garages and grew it from there. Can it be done that way? Yeah, but today things move so fast. And by the time you get out of the garage, two iterations may have been out somewhere else. So you have to be very discreet about uh, these kinds of stories in the past because they, they were true and it worked. You have to understand you're not only going to have your blood, sweat, and tears in it, but you got to have some capital in order to get it off the ground, right? So uh, in our case, um, we have raised 2450000 as of yesterday, private investors that see the future, and um, we are pre-revenue selling our stock at $2.25 per share. Unheard of. I mean, even the VCs that talk to me say, that's impossible. There's nobody giving money to uh, pre-revenue companies. Well, when I had it at 10 million for all of 23, I got 18 people, $925,000. Again, it goes against the stream. But, and, and the more I raise it, the better the talent I keep acquiring. So we just raised it on 24 to 12.5 million. Why do I bring this up to answer your question? I took a non-traditional approach to solving a problem, which is leaders are frustrated and disoriented because they're trying to manage organizations with the fragmented, disconnected resources of today. So we're solving that problem. And then all along, I had VC saying, oh my God, just this is when Trump was still president, regardless of you know, just giving you a time frame." And at that time, they were like, man, just get this thing done. We don't care you don't have revenue. The idea is there, right? Well, as you probably know, that all shut down with the new administration is what it is. And I had to make a lemonade on a lemon. And how I did it, I said, I am going to raise the price from par value. We're at Delaware C Corp, so 0.001 par value. I had my first investor who is my CFO. I went to her and I said, I want 50 grand. And she goes, what do you mean you want 50 grand? I said, I'm starting a new company and I want you back in. Now she's known her for 30 years. She's invested. She's a CFO. She's a MBA CPA. So in her own right, she's retired now and done very well. But it's, 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 it's contrary. I mean, you ask anybody, you raised pre-revenue money during this last three years? Yep. And I just raised it to 12 and I just closed my first person at 12.5. So that is the antithesis of what everybody's running around begging for money, their pre-revenue. And, uh, you know, again, I, I'm working with my attorney right now. We're actually thinking about giving advice on how to build the model that we've built and be able to raise two point, almost 2.5 million and have our valuation before we have revenue at 12.5 million. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, look, we're in a sweet spot. We are SaaS. We're in the workplace. We're selling it to the leaders. Yep. My theory is, my theory in my book in the first page says, the leadership challenge in the 21st century and how is how leaders contend with the convergence of technology and the human element in building the collaborative organization of tomorrow. That's in the inside flap of my book. And everything we do 
centers around that. So we have to all the time think about how can we automate what leaders do today that are time wasters. Well, Bill, I, I love the fact that you're in this space and and I know I'm going to reach out to you from time to time and check in on you to see how things are going and maybe get the download on what's going on on AI. But where can people find you? Uh, what's what's a good way for people to connect with you if, if they want to inquire about, you know, Targa? Well, I mean, first of all, you can Google me. Uh, my, my pen name uh, from Forbes is Bill Adams Jr. Jr. You can Google me. Um, you will note that uh, you go to our website. Um, you can go to YouTube, Bill Adams uh, Jr. on YouTube. You can go to my LinkedIn, which is really simple, just Bill Adams. Or uh, you, you can go uh, William Adams um, on LinkedIn uh, and put Targa. So William Adams Targa. My book, it's in Amazon. You can see in my book our, my contact information. You can reach me uh, through my uh, email. It's really simple. B Adams at Targa, T-A-R-G-A, tech, T-E-K, all one word, dot com. That's Bill Adams at targettech.com. Or if you'd like to call me directly, I have people who call, who've read my book and call me directly because my number's in there, 908, I'm sorry, 973-714-9228. That's pretty cool. Uh, Bill, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sure. You've been a pleasure. I've been on uh, several podcasts, and uh, I find this one uh, to be very poignant for the time. And I think your questioning was excellent. Well, thank you very much. If if you learned something today, please share this podcast. But again, thank Bill. I'm going to let you get back to Targa and AI. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Entrepreneur Intel. Thank you for joining us. For show notes or other episodes, please visit us at entrepreneurintel.com. Until next time.